You can open your Bibles to Genesis 3. We're going to start in Genesis 3. But I just want to say here, as we get rolling, that uh, I've been in ministry for quite a while now, almost two decades, and every year as a pastor, you know, you're thinking about Christmas, not only from the standpoint of experiencing the holiday, but also you're thinking about messages. You want to formulate a message and share a message about Christmas. And I've done that a whole bunch in my life. Pastor Rob can relate to that, where you're just thinking all these different angles and all these different aspects of Christmas, and you want to develop something to share with your congregation or with your people. And so I've, uh, I've done that a bunch. And, and this morning, I want to share with you one of the truths of Christmas that, to me, I find so encouraging and compelling that I think is going to minister to us this morning. It's going to help us. It's going to encourage us. And so the message is entitled, The Son of God Came Down. And that's what we're going to talk about. But to get started, I want to do this. I want to read for you a list of words. I'm going to read this list of words. I want you to listen carefully. And when I'm done, I have two simple questions for you. Okay, here we go. List of words. Downsize. Downgrade. Downfall. Downswing. Downturn. Downtrodden. Downbeat. Downcast. Downhearted. First question, what do all those words have in common? Down. They all start with the word down. Second question, what do those words feel like? In other words, when you hear them, are they positive feeling words or more negative feeling words? Negative. They're negative words. There's something about us as humans, we don't, we don't like the idea of down, especially if we ourselves are down in some way. We don't like downward movement, we don't like feeling down, we don't like experiencing a downturn in some part of our lives, we don't want to be downsized or downgraded. There's something about those concepts that we naturally just buck against, don't we? And it's interesting that when it comes to Christmas and the incarnation, the coming of God to this world through Jesus, it was God coming down. Christmas is, in reality, God reaching down. By nature, so often, we want to reach upward. We, we want to be promoted, not demoted. We want to be lifted up, not knocked down. We want to be as that old, uh, I think it's an old song, an old TV show, moving on up. We want to be moving on up. That's what we like, right? We don't like down. And yet the gospel teaches us and Christmas teaches us about the glory of God reaching down. God coming down. And in fact, if we can understand this idea, this truth about God coming down to meet us where we are, if we can understand this, this actually unlocks for us tremendous joy and hope and peace words like those that you see displayed this time of year decorations and we were just looking at christmas lights last night we ended up bumping into the clarks uh, unplanned but we bumped into the clarks looking at christmas lights out in coventry and uh, there's these words that you see displayed peace joy hope Words that we think of at Christmas time. Well, to really grasp how it is God ministers hope and joy and peace to us, we have to think carefully about this idea of us being down and God coming down. So first I want us to consider this, however. How we humans, naturally speaking, reach upward. I want us to think more about our upward reach. We don't like being down, so we spend our lives reaching up. Trying to step up. 
It's natural and healthy, as we talk about frequently, it's natural and healthy to have goals and ambitions, to grow, to become smarter, stronger, faster, especially as we're in our younger years getting older, right? Then it kind of, you kind of go over the, over the hill, right? And that starts to wind down a bit. But it's, it's, it's natural and it's valuable and it's healthy to be working on improving, to be growing and changing, and especially when we think of growing and changing in our abilities in a way that serves other people, that serves some purpose, that's beneficial to others. That's a great, healthy thing, and we suffer, and our society suffers when we remove that from our human experience. It's very important. But at the same time, there's this subtle, seductive temptation. With that movement upward, there's this subtle, seductive temptation that relates to our root problem, our core problem with our own pride, our own ego. And so I want us to think about this, and this is why we're starting in Genesis. We're going to think about the fall for a few moments, the fall. Now, the idea of the fall, you know, biblically speaking, in this context, relates to original sin. What went wrong there in the garden that we've all been plagued with ever since? But it's interesting that Scholars have chosen the term fall for this. When we think about fall, we think about motion, which direction, upward or downward? We think about downward direction. When you fall, you fall down the stairs. Of course, some of us have managed to fall up the stairs. I have fallen up the stairs a few times, but generally when you fall down, it's down the stairs. It's you fall down in in some way because of that thing called gravity, right? It's downward motion. And yet, the fall here in the garden, there's a sense in which it is for sure downward in terms of the degradation of man created in God's image and yet that image being marred and distorted. So it is a fall in a very real sense, but I want us to think about the fall as sort of an ascent. I want us to think about the fall as as reaching upward. It's, It's like, yes, it's falling downward, but it's kind of falling downward as we reach upward. So read with me in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Familiar passage to all of us. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Look back at verse 5 for a moment and notice that phrase, you will be like God. This is what they were after. This is what they were stretching upward for was godness. They wanted to be like God. They were reaching for more, more knowledge, more wisdom, more power, a higher vantage point. They wanted to be like God. And this was the fall. And this was the fall as a consequence of reaching upward. A a false sort of ascent. Trying to step up beyond where we creatures belong. Years ago I read this book by a theologian and I want to I looked at it again this past week because I think he has some helpful ways of talking about this. The book is called Where God Meets Man. And I want you just to listen to a few excerpts of this book. 
about this concept. Speaking of original sin, listen to what he says. According to the biblical picture of temptation, it is not actually for man to lower himself, but rather just the opposite. The temptation is to become like God. Man's temptation is to reach for something that does not belong to him. That heavenly perfection that beckons him to leave the earth for some spiritual paradise. The temptation is for man to refuse his creaturehood, to refuse his humanity, to refuse to take care of the earth, and instead to try to become a god. This is the essence of sin, pride. Sin is located not primarily in the body, but rather precisely in our spiritual pretensions and ambitions. It is our godlike aspirations that destroy our lives and seduce us to make life miserable for our fellow man. See what he says about that reach upward, that attempt to be like God. One last little excerpt here. He says, the fall of man is therefore a fall from faith. It's a fall from trusting God. What happens is that man succumbs to the temptation to overreach himself, to mess about in those things which are above him. He loses his trust in God and tries to take his fate in his own hands. He denies his creaturehood and his humanity and attempts to take up the mantle which belongs to God alone. So you see there's this fall, this idea of down being downcast or this downward movement or being found in a low place. It's a reality. But in a very real sense, it's a consequence of our attempt and our craving to go higher. To go higher in our own estimation. To go higher in our own status. To demand that we be higher in the eyes of other people. To demand more for ourselves. And where does that come from? Well, you stay in Genesis 3. I'm going to turn to Isaiah for a minute. This is another somewhat familiar passage. The first reference here is to the king of Babylon, and yet most agree this is referring not only to the king of Babylon, but to the satanic, rebellious spirit which inspired him. And so we can say this refers to Satan himself and to fallen mankind. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14 says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, from which we get the name Lucifer. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's where it all began. That reach upward from a heart of rebellion. That egocentric perspective. I will. That still beats within our natural fallen heart every day. I will. That's where it began. And this is what makes us so miserable. Again, I just want to reiterate, in the natural realm, it's good to have goals and ambition in our society in some ways today is suffering with an increase in mental illness related to an abandonment of good goals and work and things like that. There's a sense in which that's true. Uh, Same time, our obsession humanly with trying to be God, our demand to be higher than we are, to have more than we have, that's the problem. 
And so much mental illness is related to it. You know, over the years, I've counseled many, many people, countless people, countless hours. And I don't think, of course, my memory is limited, but I don't think it's pretty safe to assume everybody I talk to in my office in a counseling session, it had something to do with their life, them, things going in a way that they did not want them to go. Things were going for them not the way they would, would have wanted. And, and if, even if it was related to, okay, maybe it's not their life, but it's someone else's life. But it's someone else's life, but as it affects them. You know what I mean? Like, that's why they're there. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. You, you dig into things and, and you deal with mental unwellness or mental illness or the fallen heart and mind, call it whatever you want to call it. Deal with that reality. And what you bump into is you bump into people's egos. And this is me and this is you. This is all of us. It's our obsession with how I'm being treated, how I'm perceived by others. Am I respected enough? Are they thinking of me? Why didn't they reach out to me? I mean, do you ever send a text message and within like 10 seconds you're waiting for the response as if the other person's whole life just revolves around you like they were just spending their whole day just waiting for you to reach out to them? But you think, well, why? they didn't say anything. Or you see the little dots and then nothing comes up. What do you do with, with that? <laughs> How I'm being treated. Am I a big enough deal? Am I safe enough? Am I pleased enough? Am I excited enough in life? I, 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 right? And so much of our unwellness, illness, sickness, sinfulness just begins and ends with me, myself, and I. In wanting to be higher than we are. Wanting to have more than we have. One last thing from Genesis 3. I think you're still there. I need to turn back there. I'm just kind of getting my bearings here. Back in verse uh, 14. Notice what God says to Satan here in terms of Satan's actual place and our actual place. This is fascinating. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life you're gonna eat dust wanting to ascend higher wanting to be like the most high god and yet interestingly consigned to the dust doesn't get much lower than dust (laughs) jump ahead verse 17 through 19 Then to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." You see, our our lives are lived, even now, even this very moment, our our lives are lived, we could call it like between the dust. (laughs) The, The dust of original creation when God breathed the breath of life into mankind. And yet, ever since then, and even when we came into existence, as we live our lives, as we're on the conveyor belt of life, as we talk about so frequently, we're, we're on our way to dust, aren't we? I mean, unless Jesus comes back first, which I think we're all voting for, but let's say he doesn't. Some point, this body, I mean, look, look at your hands. I mean, right now, look at your hands. I mean, right now, it's, I mean, they're right here, right? Flesh, bone, tendons, ligaments, 
joints, muscles, one day dust. Now, I know you're thinking, Pastor Jeff, this is a real pick-me-up Christmas message so far. Like, you, this, you're knocking it out of the park here. Just bear with me. Just come along with me. Don't, don't lose me. Don't leave me. Don't leave the building. We're in the dust. In some sense, our unwillingness to accept our fate our unwillingness to accept being a creature. Our unwillingness to accept flaws and foibles and those of ourselves and those of other people. Wanting to be more than we are and wanting to have more than we have. I mean, man, if we could just grasp how seductive that all is. That there's something about the most high God that we were made to see and to worship and to celebrate that we can be so blinded to by our own pursuits and our own self-absorption. If we can maybe learn to take ourselves a little less seriously, even as we take God and His kindness and mercy and love and grace and justice more seriously. See, God reaches downward. In our humanity, we are, we are constantly reaching upward. And God reaches downward. And there's so much to be thankful for in that reality. That our God humbles himself, that he descends. You heard this term? He condescends. He descends, he comes down and condescends. A little word con added to the front. Like, it's so significant. He descends, he comes down, con, with. He comes to be with, with us. He comes to, in a sense, meet us in the dust place comes to meet us here. It's, it's Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Pastor Rob's going to be talking about tonight. God with us. He condescends to meet us in this place. It's been spoken of throughout the Bible. It's not only in the New Testament we see this, although we do see it most brilliantly in the incarnation. But just listen to a few Old Testament passages. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, God whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Psalm 138 verse 6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty or the prideful he knows from afar. Like God, listen, God doesn't have to reach up. He's already up. (laughs) He's the most high God. And what does he choose to do? He reaches down. He comes down to meet us where we are. And it is remarkable. And it is holy. It is quite other. And that's what holy, in essence, means. Quite other than anything or anyone else. And the ultimate fulfillment, of course, of this condescension of God is the incarnation, as we've been saying. God born as a little baby boy. The God who created all things takes the form of a creature. I mean, it's hard to even get your brain around that. The, the, the author of the story enters the story. The author of history enters history. It's hard to even grasp. So turn to Luke. We're going to be in Luke 2, which Brian read earlier, but we're going to start in Luke 1 and just think for a moment about the concept of the incarnation. Luke 1 
verses 26 through 35. I'm going to read it. You just read along this familiar part of the narrative here. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel, of, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. I don't know if you caught it, but two times there, there's a reference to the Most High God. The Most High God enters the world in the most lowly of ways. Now, this is amazing for so many reasons. It's amazing because of God's ability, first of all. I mean, just think about how does God, how does the infinite, limitless God enter the limitations and finitude of humanity? How does he even do that? How does he have the ability to do that? How does he squeeze his omnipotence and omnipresence and and omniscience into human form? How does he even do that? So his ability itself is worth marveling over. But along with that, and perhaps even more amazing, is his, not just his ability to do it, but his willingness to do it. His willingness to take upon himself human form. Especially when we conceive of what is so natural and instinctive for us in terms of reaching upward, wanting more, moving higher, in every conceivable area of life, and for God, who is the highest of all, the most high God, to take on the lowest form of a little human baby. Dependent, defenseless, in need of his human mother's care. It is truly amazing that he would willingly stoop when we are always like, stepping on other people to try to get where we feel like we need to get to, and and he is not stepping on anyone. He is stooping down. In fact, he, he came, stooped down in order to step on one, this is really important, back to Genesis, to crush the head of the serpent, right? And to crush the head of the serpent, he has to crush the spirit of pride and arrogance, and that's exactly what he did. And he did it not just by, like, in a military way or in a violent way fighting it. He did it by embodying within himself the most amazing humility and saying to mankind back then, still as relevant today, back then, also today, hey, uh, you're not humble. You're obsessed with yourself and your own position and your own possessions. You're obsessed. And I'm coming to rescue you. And I am. I have everything that you don't have, I have. I'm humble. So Jesus comes in this form, the most high God becomes flesh. 
It's amazing. It's truly amazing. Turn over to Luke 2. Brian read a few minutes ago. Luke 2. If we can, let's just read it one more time. I know it's familiar to you, but just to get our minds back in this part of the story. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So think about this. The Most High God enters this world. The King of kings and Lord of lords enters this world. And how does he do it? He does it in the most humble fashion. Born in obscurity to a poor, young, unknown couple. Born to to two nobodies. Born in a stable, which is basically a barn. With all the sights, sounds, and smells of a barn. Not exactly an entrance fit for a king. Laid in a manger, which that, even that word is a little sterilized for us, and we, it's very sentimental value. We think about mangers and sea mangers. You know, it's a feeding trough where animals stick their faces and gobble up food and drool. It's that place. Son of God, there. Really? Really? Yeah, really. Uh, why? Well, in part because you and I would never do that. <laughs> We'd never pick that for our own kid. We'd never pick that for ourselves. We'd never accept that kind of humiliation. Not if we could do anything about it. We could have changed any one of the circumstances and made this an entrance like this world's never seen in terms of splendor and glory and impressiveness and resources. I mean, I mean, think of what God is capable of doing, how he could have entered, and this is how he chooses to enter. This is laid in a manger. He's hailed by some as king, and there's this interesting mix of both glory and yet also like commonness about this. It's interesting how it's all mixed together. There's angelic appearances and declarations and the wise men and all of that, but then there's also like this just commonness and rejection and even think about this he's being hunted by Herod not long after his death lest Herod lose his role as the king of the Jews to some other person coming along he can't let that happen right because of why because of his ego because of his pride that can't happen meanwhile the son of God is in the form of a little baby boy raised in uh, born in Bethlehem raised in Nazareth remember the saying about Nazareth can anything good come from Nazareth it's like saying, can anything good come from, I don't know, uh, Pawtucket, well, Winsocket? I don't know. I'm not as familiar with this area. No offense if you're from there. and You're in good company if you want to look at it that way. That might help you. But, you know, whatever. Whatever is not like New Jersey. Uh, totally no New Jerseyites in here, right? Can anything good come out of, I mean, we have these places. We have these sayings today. It's like, really? God's coming from, the Messiah is coming from, from Nazareth. Really? So brilliant in the plan of God. He had to be born in Bethlehem, and yet from Nazareth, like both are true. It's just amazing, God's story. 
He lives this life of um, quietness and service. The first 30 years of his life, almost no one heard a peep from him. Just working as a no-name carpenter. Then you think, well, okay, but then he comes on the scene, he starts his ministry, he starts teaching and doing miracles, and, 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 and astounding, no question about it. We still marvel over all that. But it's, it's even almost just as marvelous to think, and that's, wait, that's it though? Just three years of that? And, and, and you put up with the rejection of virtually everyone? Even your closest followers in your days when you needed them the most bailed on you? And that's what you allowed yourself to go through, Really? I mean, it was quite modest when you think about what it could have been. He comes as a man despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as we're told in Isaiah. Simple, lowly life of service, followed by shameful death. He accepted humiliation and difficulty and loneliness. Listen to this. He accepted all those things. Humiliation, difficulty, lowliness. He accepted all those things to come rescue us from our inability to do the same. He forgives us for all our pride, self-involvement, self-aggrandizement that is such a toxin and poison to us. He forgives us and assures us that we're loved by our God, that God meets us in the lowest place and ministers his love and his grace and his mercy and his acceptance to us there. And that is awesome. That place of the dust where we find ourselves because of that rebellion, because of that spirit of pride. That's where we find ourselves and he says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming to live in your place and die in your place and take upon myself the curse that you deserve. And yet, as it says back in the Psalms, he would not allow his Holy One to see decay. Even the dust will be resurrected because of the promises of God, because of the incarnation that he first of all came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose. And we get to rise too. Because of our gracious God, it's awesome. So it's, uh, it's Christmas 2023. And it's interesting. Every, every year that goes by, we are, we are one year farther from the occurrence of the incarnation and yet no farther from its relevance. Because even in 2023, especially in 2023, we are equally plagued by our pride. Individually, as a country, as a globe, I mean, all of us humans, mankind. Like, we, we desperately need Christmas not just because we like lights and trees and decorations and gift giving, all those things are great and I love them. We desperately need Christmas because we need divine humility to be granted to us. We need God to meet us where we are. We need God to teach us the truth. We need God to reveal our pride as our biggest problem. We need God to show us because we're not easily persuaded that that is true. We're not naturally convinced that is true. And so in radical, extreme ways, thousands of years ago, he demonstrated it. He lived it and then he recorded it that we might over and over and over again revisit these truths and say, wow, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being such a great Savior. You shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. You, you shall call, we could say it this way, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their pride and their arrogance. He alone can save us. 
And he has saved us. And that is what Christmas is all about. We are welcomed, we are invited to worship him for his highness and his lowliness. God sent him, the humble Savior, to be humble in our place. In one sense, to show us how to be humble, sure, but also to convince us that we're not humble and therefore to offer himself to us as the only way to humility. And this is why we say uh, we desperately need the new covenant truths of the, the Holy Spirit indwelling because he gives us the fruits of love and joy and peace that don't come, they don't stem from a heart of pride. They come from the newness of who God created us to be in God's image, restored to that image in Christ. Now, this gift of the Spirit's God giving himself to us is saying, now you're alive. And really, the beginnings of humility is not saying, oh, I'm gonna be more humble. The beginnings of humility is saying, I'm not humble. But God, you... In Christ, you you humbled yourself. In Christ, you did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, is one of the translations. And it means you didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held onto, but you let it go and came in the form of a servant. And now Paul says there in Philippians 2, and then we have the same mind in Christ. Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now he's saying, look, just accept that God is going to humble you. As part of your fellowship with Jesus, he's going to humble you. He's going to humble you by the aches and pains in your body. Can I hear an amen to my over 40s in the crowd? (laughs) I thought so. That was a nice, tenacious, strong amen from weakening, embattled people. He, He does. And so, some questions to ponder. What is it about your life right now, this Christmas, or whenever... What is it about your life that makes you feel low? It feels embarrassing. Where are you experiencing a downsize, a downgrade, a downfall? Where are you downtrodden or downbeat or downcast? Maybe something to ponder this morning. Maybe that's right where God intends to meet you. To reveal to you the glory of his humility. We all want to be a big deal. We all do, and and yet we're just not that big of a deal. And God's inviting us to accept that. When you're around your your relatives this Christmas, you're a, you're a small deal, and that's okay. You don't have to outcook them, out housekeep them, outdress them, out earn them, out. My kids are better than yours, them, whatever. You don't have to be admired or respected. You have a Savior who, was, who became a small deal and yet was the biggest deal of all. So God help us to accept uh, our mediocrity and ordinary selves, ordinary jobs, ordinary roles in life, just one final thought before I pray. It's not a book I was reading recently. It's actually called Ordinary. It's a good book. Michael Horton's the author. And in the book, he has a quote there where he just says, you know, as Christians especially, you know, we all want to be part of some big, like, movement of God, some big revolution. And he says, and, and no, yet nobody, nobody wants to do the dishes. 
Nobody wants, in my house, nobody wants to walk the dog. Nobody wants to uh, give up the front seat in the car. Nobody wants to hand over the last Christmas cookie. May God show us the deep-rooted, seductive nature of our pride. Not to beat us down, not to beat us down, uh, but to, to meet us there and to minister his truth, his grace, his kindness to us that we might marvel over, that we might worship another, that God might awaken us to see him and the glory in him this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the coming of Jesus. It truly amazes us because of how different, how otherworldly this storyline is to think that, that you entered this world through your son in the form of a, of a limited, fragile baby boy. It's, it's mind-boggling that you were downsized, that you were downgraded, that you allowed yourself through your son Jesus to be downcast and downtrodden. All with a very important purpose, that we might see the glory of humility, that we might be rescued from the root of our sin, that your son might be our substitute in every way humble for us, accepting everything in life that you put him through for our good and for your glory, his amazing service, his selflessness, his, his lack of any need to demand anything from anyone, whether material things, relational things, status, none of it. Laid aside all divine prerogatives, God, it blows our minds because given such power, given any power, it would not be our nature to do the same. So Lord, help us to marvel over Christ in fresh ways this Christmas season. Be with us even as we sing this final song. Be with us this evening as we come back to sing more and enjoy more and celebrate more the realities of Christmas. Prepare us to hear more truth tonight and to be built up in the truth of who you are and the the wonder of who you are and help us to accept a little more readily our lowly place in life. And we thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.